0: Hey everyone, Justin Mancini, one of your co-hosts here on every pod you cast. Just wanted to bring your attention to something for this episode. We did have some issues with Chris's audio on this particular recording. It was not immediately apparent during the recording process but became very apparent during the editing process. Uh, we did manage to find the source of this audio issue, so we do not anticipate having this problem in the future, but just wanted to give you a little bit of heads up for this episode. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to our one night show. Just take a seat. They're always free. This is Every Pod You Cast, a podcast dedicated to the rock band The Police. My name is Justin Mancini. I am one of your co-hosts here. You may know me from the Cinema Joes podcast, as well as Pod on the Rooftops, which is a podcast dedicated to the rock band Genesis and Podwork Angels The Rush Hour dedicated to the rock band rush and joining me is one of my co-hosts from podwork angels he also happens to be my brother chris mancini hello chris
1: hey justin just want to get next to you that and that will be the extent of our
0: police related po- no there, there'll be many more to come i i apologize <laughs> listeners There's going to be a lot more to come as we go along but we are i'm very happy to be with you chris um to talk about this band that we grew up listening to and joining us is a music enthusiast a homework-obsessed teacher and a close-reading aficionado, Randy Elaine. Hello, Randy.
2: Hey, Justin. It's great to be here. Uh, I know I'm new to the podcast, but I will be your canary in the coal mine, and we'll see if we can get through this thing.
0: <laughs> well, I appreciate—I uh, definitely appreciate the uh, the the meaning behind that. I, but maybe we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. I think we got a couple albums to go before that one. So, <laughs> so. Uh, definitely good effort. We'll we'll definitely uh <laughs> we'll definitely take it under cons- under advisement. Uh, you know this is not our first episode, but it's our first episode talking about one of the police's five albums, and it's their debut album, which of course is Outlandos D'Amour from 1978. Outlaws of Love. Yes, Outlandos D'Amour. Uh, which is sort of a rough translation of Outlaws of Love. Although I didn't realize until recently this is how good my French is, listeners, that Outlandos is not French at all. more is, meaning of love. Outlandos is actually, maybe somewhat ironically, a portmanteau, uh, which is a French word, of outlaws and commandos. Um, so that was kind of the that was kind of the thinking behind that. I don't know how much that translated, <laughs> but um uh, that was the idea anyway. So this is on this podcast, we do like to each each of the uh, episodes going forward will be focused on, on an individual album. We'll be discussing our overall thoughts, the songs we like, the songs we don't like as much, our favorite lyrics, and our favorite musical moments. Uh, but before we get into the, any of that stuff, we are going to offer a little bit of history on the album. And because this is like the first sort of album episode, we're also going to be talking a little bit about the formation of this band. And I did let my two co-hosts uh, know that they can also jump in if, if they want to share any other history that I may be neglecting as I kind of give a, a beat by beat of the early history of The Police here up until um, the making and uh, production, the production of uh, Outlandos de Um But really, when you talk about The Police, it really did begin with Stuart Copeland. This was very much his brainchild, including the name. He had been touring with a band called Curved Air uh, which was a kind of like prog rock, art rock type of band in London. He was not an original member. He had just kind of joined them at a certain point. And despite being raised, you know, for a good chunk of his life in London, he's actually an American. His family had moved around a lot. His dad was actually in the CIA, but the family eventually settled in London. So he he does call London his home. Uh, and when he was starting this band, he recruited uh, a Corsican guitarist named Henri Padovani, um, which he did mostly because he thought it would give them a more of like a punk aesthetic because he they really thought Padovani looked like an authentic punk guitarist. He was maybe a little more limited in his playing <laughs> than the eventual gu- uh, guitarist for the police. And the name of the of the group, which kind of was a reaction to the punk movement at the time, of which stuart copeland was determined to be a part of but also kind of maybe poke fun a little bit like oh what if we name ourselves after the authority that might be interesting um but you can imagine that also caused some rancor amongst uh, their fellow um their fellow punk artists of the time and this would not be the last time that would happen <laughs> so eventually what would happen is actually when curved air was in newcastle Stewart would meet a man named gordon sumner who was actually known by sting at the time he was he had been playing with a band called last exit Um, of course got his name from a jumper that had black and yellow stripes on it Um, and last exit was kind of more jazz fusion type of band and sting was doing vocals he was doing bass at this time and uh, it became clear to stewart that this was someone who was in need of a change in his life Um, i believe The way Stewart has described it is he was discussing the band with Sting and the thing that Sting kept saying, listening very intently and saying, keep talking. And according to Stewart, that's when he knew that this was a guy who was like he had him on the hook, that this was a guy who was really looking for a change, (laughs) looking for something a little more looking for something that was maybe going to start going forward. Um, because he really wasn't experiencing that with last exit
2: as someone who came to the police a little bit later in life after knowing some of the big hits i think what surprised me the most learning about them was just how much uh Stuart copeland quarterbacked this whole thing you know putting the pieces together he yeah. was out there with his side acts uh clark kent doing all that experimental sort of stuff and you know Sting brought the the songs and the energy that would endure but it was just really cool to see how the formation really came from someone else
0: yeah, and, and that was something before I did my research on this, I didn't realize like how pivotal Stuart was in the sort of initial conception. Really, a lot of the business stuff, which I think he got from his family, especially his older brother Miles, who I'll mention a little bit later. So, yeah, that that is kind of fascinating. And I like that they described doing like the DIY of it, like they would actually, you know, put all the al- – the, uh, the- they were making singles and they were putting them in these, you know, in the sheets and like – sending them out and trying to get trying to gin up some interest um which again is something that stewart uh, really took uh, really took care of so then what's going to happen is they're going to meet up with their uh a new guitarist they they are at, at this point they're a three-piece and there's a new guitarist that's going to enter uh enter the scene but what's interesting to me about this part of the his, the band's history is like you don't realize how many bands like actually interact that you assume are like very separate entities that becomes a theme uh, with the police and with several other bands. Um, So there's a band called Gong. I don't know if any of our listeners are familiar with them. Uh, Very prog rock, like I'd say like kind of like proto noise rock type of band. Um, Very experimental. (laughs) Um, Gong is like a full fledged. It's more than just a band. It's almost like a collective at this point. And one of the members of Gong, Mike Howlett, decides to, he wants to do a side project called Strontium 90. So he recruits Sting and Stewart and a guitarist named Andy Summers, who would become the eventual guitarist for The Police. Uh, so that's the first gig that they play at together as Strontium 90. Um, Andy kind of sticks around. He's a bit older than Stewart and Sting by about 10 years. <laughs> And he's seen a lot more of the music industry than either of them, as that as as uh, is the case. He was very active in the 60s. He would played with such bands as the Animals, which are probably best they're probably best known for the cover of House of the Rising Sun. Um, he also played with the Soft Machine. Again, had no idea there was any connection between the Police and the Soft Machine. Again, more of like a jazz prog rock fusion type of band. And so he's bringing a lot more experience uh, with it. But And they do, for a short time, they do try to make it as a four-piece band with two guitarists. Uh, But there's a lot of frustration there. (laughs) And at a certain point, Andy does request uh, that Henri be let go, and he take over as the only guitarist. Um, And I love this quote from Stuart about that, uh, which is, Andy has bulldozed his way into the group to the benefit of the group.
2: Yeah, it's like they had to work through tension sometimes. It eventually yes. tore them apart. But
0: Right, and sometimes the working through was uh, maybe less productive, <laughs> more just a way of venting frustration, and maybe not always in the healthiest way. Um, so as a three-piece, this is when they really sort of become what we know of today as the police. They do a lot of gigging everywhere in Europe, Uh, But America is where they start to see a bit more success. The American audiences seem to be a lot more receptive to what um, what the police are bringing. And part of it might be that American audiences at this point are not as familiar with the punk scene as much as the UK would be at this point. So they're just kind of hearing this like high energy music. And it doesn't really matter to a lot of them that, oh, it's not authentic punk. (laughs) It's more like, hey, this is fun. There's a lot of energy to this. It's a lot of different sounds. The reggae, of course, comes in a lot. That had been a huge thing in the U.K. as a result of immigrants from the Caribbean islands bringing that music into the U.K. So that is also a huge part of the police sound. And when it comes to recording their first album, they will go to borrow fifteen hundred pounds from Brother Miles to finance the production of the album. They record it at Surrey Sound Studios uh, in Surrey in the U.K., and it's very much done on an intermittent basis uh as i think they describe it whenever uh they could find time and also whenever the studio uh had canceled someone <laughs> who had a reservation they would sort of fit them they would sort of fit in there um so it's very much produced piecemeal and it's produced actually by the police themselves which i think is pretty remarkable given it's their first album i think it has a pretty good sound um and you know there's there's definitely choices that they made especially having listened to some of the raw tracks and seeing what they were able to do um with the production and with the sound engineering and this album is well (laughs) miles originally wants to call it police brutality um you can see why that would maybe maybe eventually be a problem (laughs) and uh he actually listens to a lot of the songs and decides on actually maybe something a little more romantic and goes without landos demore which is how it's known today during the recording of this album miles is pretty unimpressed with a lot of the songs <laughs> on it but he's very impressed with a song called roxanne and this is the song that he takes to AM records which is the uh which will eventually be the uh record company that puts this out he goes to the executives he plays them roxanne and they say okay we release it as a single uh it fails to chart however it does pave the way for another single can't stand losing you. And this becomes their first real hit, which I would have guessed Roxanne was like the thing that put them on the map kind of, but not really. And even though I would say Roxanne would eventually become a bigger hit than can't stand losing you can't stand losing you is really the first thing that really gets them on the charts. And that's the thing that propels A&M to say, okay, we'll release this album because it's basically complete <laughs> at this point. And uh, and that's how it happens. And that's how uh, that's how the album gets put out. So, yeah, that was a lot of stuff. Uh, I don't know if there's anything else you you guys wanted to add. Either you, Chris, or you, Randy.
2: So uh, so one thing I did want to add, as you know, I've got my my deep love for television. Uh, (laughs) You mentioned like the lack of understanding of what punk actually was in America. Uh, Are either of you familiar with a late 90s television show called Freaks and Geeks?
0: Uh, very familiar. I'm I'm definitely a fan of the series.
2: So uh, so the creator of this show at one point released several pages from the series Bible that kind of set the the emotional tone for the show. Like, what are the rules going to be? And one thing in the section that he released is a list of like who listens to what music. Uh, and one of those things uh, is first and foremost, he has a couple of bands that are important to you guys. Genesis and Rush Uh According to them, okay. only the only the freaks listened to Genesis and Rush, but that's good because they were like they're the cool ones. Maybe also the ones experimenting with drugs. Uh, the Sex Pistols and the Ramones, nobody knew about them, uh, and the police. The freaks listened to them, but also a few geeks. So I kind of feel like I am here as your your resident geek to hang out for this one. So uh, that that's all I could think of when you were talking about nobody understanding that punk scene.
0: well and it also it's a little bit appropriate because i do think of those of genesis rush and police i would say the police (laughs) had the most mainstream appeal Mm -hmm. like they appealed to many different audiences both the hardcore music fans and the people who were like oh i just like this sound this is fun like (laughs) and every everyone in between um so very appropriate and uh yeah that's really oh that's really fun Um, Randy, I'm actually gonna uh go to you just to ask your general thoughts on this album, especially because I know you were just telling me off air that you've been listening you had uh some time recently to really uh to really delve into uh into this album.
2: Yeah, so I thought this album was a ton of fun. Uh it, it comes in with a lot of energy. I think the the first few tracks just all Uh, really grab me and keep my adrenaline pumping, you know, when I was trying to figure out where my favorite tracks are, you know, they're, they're largely the first half of that album. Um, And it's really fun. Um, You know, we're going to get eventually to which songs we liked less than others. There's truly nothing I hate on this album. And I, I just think that's really cool. I can definitely see those moments where they're trying to, you know vaguely evoke some sort of punk mentality like you you can see them grasping for it probably on this album more than any other one and yeah you know i think a couple of my favorite tracks are tracks where they're trying to do it and uh a couple of my least favorite tracks are tracks where they're trying to do it less successfully um and then you know I, i believe i said this last episode and we kind of alluded to it already but there's just something so magical about Roxanne like it does kind of jump off that track list to me that like there's something else there that they're they're trying to unlock um I know I was what I keep talking about this Andy Summers documentary that I watched but uh you know one thing he talks about is you know a night that Sting stayed over at his house uh you know with Andy and his wife and they hear him playing Roxanne and they are like enchanted by it and they start developing the song and and at least looking back on that era, Andy kind of describes that as a moment where he started to realize this band could be something more than this gimmicky uh, sort of joke. And, and, you know, I listened to this album and it's it's in my top three albums. I realize there are only five. So maybe that's not saying much, but uh, but I really love this one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like the and definitely the punk influence is, I would say, bigger on this album than any of the remaining ones. Uh, Not to say there wouldn't be some other high energy tracks to come, but like really this is, I think it's their most like direct album. Energy is definitely like the word I I think of when I think of it. It really feels like a debut album. Um, And I would say maybe for me, like the first, I I, I might say like the first three quarters or so is, uh, is really solid for me. Like there's a lot of songs that are love songs, which is appropriate for the title. But they are not your conventional love songs. These are usually tragic. There's a lot of heartache, a lot of anxiety. Um, I think it's kind of hilarious just that the most successful love story is the song about a guy who's ultimately gratified with his inanimate sex doll. Like that's the most successful love story on this album. Uh, I think that's really kind of funny. I think that speaks to their sense of humor I think it's more than just showing promise like this is like this is giving us some of their classic songs um so it's not just a sort of you know okay we did our debut and now like we're into the real stuff this is the real deal like from the get-go um and while i don't think every single song is completely successful or like every moment like and i'm really curious to see where it's gonna land in my when i rank the albums uh it sounds like randy you already have a pretty good idea I think it's really solid. I always remember having a, a great affinity for it uh, because it was, you know, I listened to everything chronologically when I was younger, and I just remember hearing this and being like, "Oh, wow, this is a really cool." Like it, it felt very emblematic of how I felt about the police at the time. So, um, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of it. And uh, Chris, how do you feel about Atlanta's Demore?
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree with a lot of what you both said. I think it's maybe not as cohesive as some of their later albums because I felt like they're either like bringing in the punk or they're bringing in like kind of the more reggae sound. And so, you know, I felt like they're kind of going in between them. And I think that's fine, but it felt like they were still trying to figure out what their sound was. And um, so, yeah, it's interesting because them trying to Play themselves as a as a punk group. There was a surprising amount of reggae and jazz in their first album, uh, and maybe you know the success of you know "Can't Say I'm Losing You" is maybe what triggered them to go more in that direction. Speaking of that, I know we'll get into songs later, but I did want to point out that the BBC did ban uh, that song. <laughs> Due to the singles cover, which featured yes. Copeland hanging himself over an ice block being melted by a portable radiator. So, yep, <laughs> you're talking about uh, different uh, a different range of you know expressions of love that is certainly <laughs> on some end of the scale there. Um, but yeah, I thought it was interesting because like a lot of their like um, upbeat reggae beats have like kind of depressing lyrics in them and then you have like your aggressive punk um you know songs being about maybe more traditional love so it's interesting the dichotomy uh, that's throughout this album you know most of the songs are are really solid and um you know maybe it's a little weaker towards the end but um, it's definitely an album I can listen end to end and I won't skip any songs. Yeah, that's I think that's I think that's very fair. Um, and, you know, I, I hear what you're
0: saying about like the contrast between like the punk and the reggae. I tend to like the songs that like combine both of them, like So Lonely is, does that really well, I think. Um, but yeah, they are. I, I think I agree in the sense that they do seem like they're still kind of looking for their identity to an extent. Um You know, it's always vague to me, you know, the the sort of reason behind why Stewart wanted to do a punk band. Was it because he was genuinely interested in the music or was it because it was a more commercially viable, you know, uh, avenue for for the music and maybe a sort of starting place? I think that the album and the subsequent career that would happen seem to maybe suggest more of the latter. Um, But uh, but that's just my that's just my opinion.
2: Um, no, I would agree with that. I uh, I think I mentioned last time I heard Stuart on a a podcast called In Defense of ska, and he was just talking about the whole scene with with the two tone records and and everything that was going on with the ska and the reggae, and uh, and and he pretty much admitted to copying the Clash, copying <laughs> reggae and ska, which I thought uh, was was kind of interesting. But yeah, like that, you know, I I love Stuart Copeland and Andy Summers, like some of their tracks are some of my favorites. But but he does love that showmanship and the 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 games as well. Um, Absolutely. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's funny because, like, of course, I'm interested because, you know, he's a musician I really respect and I I do love hearing what he says. Um, But I think he's I think he's very charming and I think he's very self-deprecating um and sometimes i actually want to say like all right that's that's enough you don't have to beat yourself up that much dude (laughs) so he's he's a fun interview that's for sure um so guys we're going to get into our individual categories now uh and this is our loved you since i knew you category this is where we talk about a song that we that we like maybe it's one we think is underrated or overlooked or maybe it's just one that we really like and want to talk about so I'm going to start with Chris. I'm going to start with you on this one. Uh, What song did you love since you knew it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so this is actually a song that I didn't hear until later. I'd say generally the better known songs on the album of Roxanne and So Lonely and Can't Stand Losing You. And so I went with one that I felt might be overlooked, and I went with peanuts peanuts i love the the fast tempo on this song i'm a kind of a sucker for uh you know fast tempo it has really nice uh bass riff that uh that sting provides and um really can hear the snare very well uh on this song uh i described it as snappy <laughs> uh and yeah, so it, sure. it Really love the tempo of it, and then um, there's some crazy uh, solos in here. You have kind of a chaotic guitar solo in the middle, and then I don't know exactly what instrument it is, but later it's either sax, kazoo, or something in between is making some crazy noises that uh, I've never heard before. I guess that all combined together just made it a really unique song, and... A song that stuck out to me uh, is really catchy. And originally, uh, the song was apparently written about Rod Stewart. Although Sting has since said that it's no longer about him. And probably because, you know, his initial view of what was being shown in the limelight about Rod Stewart at the time, I think he was a bit disappointed about. Uh, and then probably as he kind of gained fame and fortune, he was like, well, I can kind of see <laughs> how you can get uh, caught up in this. And uh, I think eventually he was like, well, I, I kind of understand and I no longer think the song is about him. <laughs> uh, so that was interesting because uh, I didn't know about that before coming into it. And uh, I liked I like the use of Sting saying like peanuts, like it almost sounds like, you know, someone at a baseball game just yelling out, you know, this thing into the ether that, you know, maybe some people pay attention to, but most people probably ignore. Uh, so I thought that was a very interesting way to to use that in the song. Yeah,
0: that's a good connection, Chris. I didn't think of that because I did wonder. I was kind of, you know, knowing what the song was about. I was like, what does the what do the Peanuts have to do with that? But that makes a lot of sense, you know, and just like the song is kind of responding to all the tabloid drama, you know, it's also something you can choose to hear it or you can choose to ignore it. It's that
2: same kind of idea. So, yeah, like you're really hawking your wares like here's what I have to offer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: And the other thing I think is interesting, just in the sense of like, you know, the song is very critical of someone. They don't specify, you know, he doesn't specify who. But it is that that question of like, you know, is that Rod Stewart's fault? Is it the media's fault? Like, does Rod Stewart want to air all his dirty laundry or is that just, you know, the demand for it? And so there's so it's it is interesting. I wonder if part of that is why he realized that maybe it wasn't maybe it evolved for him in terms of its meaning um great yeah that's a that's a good one uh definitely one i discovered later as well chris but i wanted to go to randy next for his love you since i knew you song
2: all right i think I've, I've already sung the praises of roxanne so i'm gonna hold off on that um i was really torn between two tracks so i'm gonna go with the one that i think you're a little bit less likely to go with because i almost went with so lonely but my choice is going to be whole in my life I absolutely love the song Hole in My Life, and I was trying to piece together why. Because I think my first listen through, I liked it, but it didn't jump out. And uh, at the end of the day, not to oversimplify things, but just hitting those guitar, uh, sorry, hitting those drum notes so hard throughout the song, it like forces you to do yes. a slow headbang. Yep. Like The whole thing is syncopated, and I'm listening, and I can't not move my head with it the whole time um you've got like the drum beat and the yeah yeah and like i just get lost in the the groove of it it kind of sucks you in that idea of a hole in your life is like just vague enough that you can fill that that hole with whatever sort of personal baggage you want from moment to moment you know I, i don't I don't think this is the last time I'm going to talk about this song today uh, because there there are a bunch of things going on here that I, I really, really love. Uh, but I think it's another credit to uh, Stuart Copeland. Um, you know, I know these guys spent a lot of time fighting over like whose instruments got to be the loudest <laughs> when they were performing a song like who gets to be heard, who's in the background. Uh, And especially, I think, after listening to some interviews, I can just picture him back there, like really slamming that drum, really turning up that track, uh, just really getting that energy in there. Um, And I think that probably has the most that sort of style has the most in common with some of the other sort of like more contemporary alternative rock and stuff that I really still love today that sticks with me. Those those heavy, like slow head bop uh, sort of tracks. So I'm going to go with Hole in My Life. I really dig that song.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up the drums, too, because I, I agree with you. I think that's part of what does make it like it kind of makes every every other aspect of the song like stand out. So it's actually in a way complementing it, but it's like unmistakable. It's always there and it's regular and methodical. Um, Yeah, that's that's one of those songs I it took me a little bit to get into. um, And but now I'm definitely a fan. And uh, yeah, just again, playing to that theme on the album of people taking (laughs) heartbreak, not particularly well. Um, (laughs) Definitely no, uh, definitely have not uh, consulted a therapist yet. Um,
1: Uh,
2: At least at least we're not playing fast and loose with suicide yet in that one. Not yet. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Not yet. Yes. Yeah.
1: Um, I also think the song does a good job of mixing up. Uh, Obviously, you have there's a hole in my life on repeat but there are other parts of the song that kind of get added into the mix that that make it you know so interesting to listen to you have like the yeah mix-ups uh this thing does you have uh, a piano track added in like midway through and even like I know there's different things that uh obviously you mentioned the drums but they're are kind of playing different notes at different times of the song so it's it's really interesting like that was one of those where you first heard it was like oh wow it's very repetitive and then i go back and it's like Mm -hmm. oh i'm picking this up now oh i'm picking up that now
2: oh yeah actually based on what you said chris i'm gonna smuggle this in now instead of saving it for the musical moment but but one of my things is like like you said the piano comes in but like in that last little cacophony, like towards the end of the song, it's like they're just playing almost two notes on top of it, like like these back and forth sort of like piano notes. And I I love the way it feels in that moment. It's like a, it's like a more subdued version of like the cacophony of sound at the end of Peanuts. Like I just love it's like capturing that sort of internal chaos of the song. And yeah, I just I love it. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, yeah, I'm very, uh, very much a fan of the the songs that my co-hosts have brought up. Uh, I'm going to bring up a different one. Uh, And it's a song that I don't think it's not considered one of the major hits from the album, which may be one of the reasons why I chose it. But it's one that for me has always been like one of the better songs on this album. It's a truth. hits everybody. Um, I just really love the energy of this song. I think of it almost as like being very emblematic of the early police, like it has this aggressiveness. But what I especially love about the sort of main riff that just again, just like assaults you (laughs) from the beginning of the song is how like the bottom end of it, which is both Sting playing bass and also Andy playing at a lower register for that main riff. Um, I think that's a really cool choice. I love how fast the verse section is, especially the vocals. And given the, say, strangeness uh, of the lyrics of the lyrical content, it almost feels like he's being overwhelmed by everything that he's seeing. Like he's he can't like keep up. Like his like the voice can't keep up with it. It has to. It's like racing to try to share all this information. It's you know, it's like Kubla Khan esque in that way. Little Coleridge. Uh, illusion there for my english teacher friend
2: loved every second of it
0: (laughs) um but also like the chorus is really really cool um because it's it's basically just two lines where truth hits everybody truth hits everyone and then there's like back and forth but just that like the the slight metrical deviation and the number of syllables really does add something to that section it really does make it stand out and I love that the song culminates in this section with with bells, like, like almost like towing ominously or something. And you think, because at this point in the album, you've heard a couple of Andy's solos, you think this is the part where Andy's going to solo. And he does some riffs, but he never quite solos. It's almost like, Setting you up to think a, re- a solo is going to come, but not giving to, it just puts you more and more on edge, which I think is such a great thing about this song. It's like kind of unsettling, but also really high energy and like really fun at the same time. It's doing a lot of things. I will say I had a harder time finding a lot about this song in terms of what it's about. Supposedly, it is based on a ted hughes poem i don't know randy if you're familiar with ted hughes the poet at all um because i am not (laughs) i'll say that Uh,
2: unfortunately i'm gonna jump in and say i'm also not very familiar i I think i came across the same little tidbit but i'm curious to see uh what you found
0: um well very little (laughs) because as far as i could tell the ted hughes poem is called truth kills everybody so at a certain point, uh, Sting was developing the song for "Last Exit" and calling it "Truth Kills," um, and then changed the lyric at a certain point. Um, but from what I can gather, the song seems to be about developing this newfound awareness. Perhaps I know this word has become somewhat taboo to say now, but like it's kind of about like being woke, <laughs> like awakening to like an awareness of the world. You know, the, the lyrics are incredibly vague. It almost seems like it could be a drug trip or something. But I kind of love that it's sort of inscrutable. It really does distinguish it from some of the other songs on the album. Like even compared with something like Masoko Tenga, which is sort of designed to be inscrutable. This feels like there could be a meaning, but it's not quite clear what it is like. It's it, and I think it's it really stands out from the other songs as a result of that. Um, but yeah, I just always really like this. Believe it or not, I think I heard it in a promotional ad for, like, The Amazing Race or something. I have to I have to see if I can find a clip, because I definitely remember hearing it in like, some sort of travel show or something, like, some sort of, like, travel reality show. Um, that's where I first heard the song, and I was like, oh, that sounds like The Police, but I don't recognize the song. And then once I started listening to Atlantos, I, like, I couldn't get enough of it. So, yeah, this is one I've always really loved. Um, I think it deserves more love along with... Yeah some of the bigger hits on the album
2: yeah there there's some cool lyrics in there that were definitely on my radar um you know uh, i'll avoid getting into them for now we'll see we'll see where we go with lyrics (laughs) later on but um but yeah like like some of that stuff you mentioned that's so poetic um and and abstract like it, it almost feels like our best glimpse into what sting will become like this this very abstract sort of reflective thing like it's like we're getting our our clearest taste of it like lyrically almost in that in that song uh really cool track
0: yeah for sure it's more the literary sting that we'll come to know very well um so guys we're gonna move on now to our king of pain this is a song that maybe doesn't work for us so well um, and, you know, we do have some latitude here. We can talk about sections of songs if we want to, or we can talk about entire songs. Completely up to you guys. Um, but I think I'm going to start this time. I got to be honest, I thought there were like a couple of songs that I, going into this before I really listened to the album again, there's a couple that are like sticking out that I'm just not a fan of. And just listening to the album multiple times, I don't really think there's a song I like hate on this album. So, I kind of ended up going with the one that I'm like, "Okay, what's the one I'm most likely to skip if if i if I need to?" Um, and it's probably not a huge surprise I'm going with "Be my Girl, Sally," which is not I don't again, not bad. And I actually kind of like the humor of it. I think the poem is delivered in a particularly uh, idiosyncratic way by Andy Summers, who I believe also wrote the poem. Um, and the Be My Girl, you know, sort of bookends of it is like really fun and like feels like a throwback to, you know, some of the groups that they probably grew up with. I, if I have an issue with it, it's that it's the track that most feels like filler track to me, even beyond again, even with Masoko Tanga, at least that feels like a jam, like something that they, you know, developed here. It very much feels like filler. And I guess I'm very conscious of that when I'm listening to it. And as a result, it's maybe the one that has the least impact for me but uh don't don't hate it just think it's you know maybe my least memorable track on the on the album
1: yeah i can i can definitely see that and the music part of it is definitely a very small part of the the whole song you have like i I, like when i first heard the song i was like whoa like the way it's starting out i was like oh my god this sounds like an epic track and then just all of a sudden it like pauses and then i start Hearing some mumbling, I was like, wait, what is this? <laughs> what have I just gotten yeah. myself into? But yeah, going back and listening to it, I had a, obviously a good chuckle. But I I understand why, why you picked the song. And I could definitely see, you know, a reason for skipping it. To me, like, it always evokes a smile and a chuckle. So I usually end up not skipping it. So, Chris, what song did you go with? For your King of Pain, Uh, I went with the song before that. Again, I don't hate the song, but I went with Born in the 50s. The chorus, there are certainly songs that have you know a repetitive chorus, but this is certainly up there with them. (laughs) Clearly, they they were born in the 50s, and by they I mean two out of the three of them. (laughs) Musically, they weren't bringing as much to the table compared to their other songs. Again, like it's something that like I could still like see myself like especially as I was like, listening to the album, sometimes it would like pop into my head. So it's certainly not again like it's not something where uh, I'm opposed to the song, but I just felt like compared to the others, it wasn't bringing uh, as much uniqueness as uh, their other songs. And then it was kind of funny, the, the part of the bridge uh where sting is singing a- and i realized like he's he's saying a lot and it's interesting the way he's singing it but like at one point i'm like is he out of breath like <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah parts it's like kind of hard to hear him but yeah i think when i was going back and trying to figure out i just felt like this one wasn't didn't shine out as much as their other
2: songs yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Chris. This one just feels very flat to me. It's hard to get excited. Uh, ironically, I think I'm going to talk about it a few times moving forward, um, despite the fact that I agree with you, because it, it was kind of like a roadmap for me to understanding this band and where they were coming from emotionally. Like it helped me start to connect to some other artists that I've been a fan of for a long time. So I found it kind of like a, a useful roadmap in that way. And it helps me connect back to like some other bands from the era, and like even like, uh, be my girl, Sally, you know, like it. It always makes me think of a quick one while he's away by the Who when I hear that one, like having this like odd sort of poem in the middle. So, yeah, it grounded me. But yeah, I'm I'm with you. It's hard to get excited about it.
1: I mean, my understanding is the the song is is talking a lot about like, like how they responded generationally, and it's like oh like. You could really like bring some you know punk feel to it and really like make it like really create an emphasis. And I feel like instead they're like, oh, I'll make it kind of laid back.
0: <laughs> yeah, a
2: punk album your dad can listen to <laughs>
0: <laughs> i I have to say this song has grown on me a little bit because I would say before we did before, again, before I like listened to it, you know extensively in the last couple of weeks um it was probably a song i would have said i was not a fan of um and i it's kind of grown on me i think part of that might be the content which is really interesting i might have something to say about that in a little bit um but i do agree i think i'd agree with you chris musically that this is where the album starts to maybe you know i feel like it was riding such a high up until this moment and this is kind of where it starts to dip for me um you know it's not one of my favorite songs on the album for sure I've become more of a fan of it, but yeah, it would never be it would never make a, a list of like my favorite police tracks
2: or anything like that.
0: Um, So, Randy, that was what was your pick for this category?
2: All right. I've got to preface this by saying you guys made this tough on me. Um, Some of my best some of my best choices were already here. So I'm I'm going to try to come at you with something that like I feel torn about because it feels a little bit blasphemous. But I'm going to try to explain where I'm coming from. Uh, first and foremost, let me say I do not hate this song. There are some things I really love about it. I'm going to go with Masoko Tanga, and, and here's why I'm going to go with Masoko Tanga. First of all, the reason it feels blasphemous is, like, there's some really fun instrumental stuff happening in this song. Like, it's got a really cool energy. Uh, you know, put me outside on a beautiful summer day by a pool, put, like, a nice cold beer in my hand, and have uh, Masoko Tanga on in the background and, like, it would just be great to vibe to that song and, it, and it's wonderful but you know uh, as you mentioned earlier uh, justin like the inscrutable lyrics uh it's so experimental it's so like almost obnoxiously like like refusing to tie itself to any really clear distinct place or time it, it frustrates me a little bit and I, it's hard for me to like make that emotional connection to it so uh, it it's tough because I think it's got a lot more like dimension and life to it than some of the other instrumentals on the track. but I wasn't I don't feel it as much despite the fact that you know that they're really getting to play with their toys and I love that aspect of it
0: i I'm kind of with you like as much as i I do like I do like the song, but it is very much a vibe and it's not quite as emotionally fulfilling, yeah for me as as a lot of the other songs I think it's it's a little bit gratifying to me that we chose like the last three tracks on the album because that is, you know, that for me is kind of where, even though there's still stuff I like there, it's not like quite at the same level as what has gone before. So yeah, I I hear what you're saying and and what you say about the lyrics I think is actually pretty apt because it's almost like they couldn't decide if they wanted to do actual lyrics or scatting, so they end up somewhere in the middle. Um, so that is, you know that's its own thing i guess
1: (laughs) also if i uh if i read correctly i believe this was like also one of the last songs that were added to the album i think they were you know trying to get something together to put their 10 together so not surprising that this kind of got hodgepodge in uh so I, i think that's a fair criticism um but I definitely love it as a jam session.
0: <laughs> yeah, it definitely is that. And I think it actually evolved from them playing, you know, live and developing these jams. I think it came from there. Um, I should also just mention, I don't know what to read into this, but uh, Masoko Tonga is Tonga is a city in Tanzania um, in Eastern Africa. And Masoko is Swahili. Uh, and it actually Soko is is market and ma is actually makes it plural. So it'd be the markets of Tonga uh, is what it translates to. What does it have to do with <laughs> any of the content? I can't tell you. Um, I don't know if this was inspired by rhythms from that area of the world or not. It sounds Frankly, it sounds a little more Caribbean to me, but I don't know enough about music in Tanzania to know if there is, in fact, a connection or if it's just nonsense. Um, I can't tell you that. So, But just an interesting like, thing I didn't yeah. know before this.
2: Yeah, it's like they're trying to evoke another culture without actually honoring one in a direct way yeah and you know and you know i'm not i'm not coming after the police on this listen i'm doing a podcast about them i'm a fan i love them but you know there'll be there'll be a conversation about appropriation in the different waves of, of ska mm-hmm. and reggae so so to see them playing a little fast and loose with things being like vaguely foreign i you know i think it's a sign of the times and and, you know, I think something they tried to grow from, you know, like like Sting in his later career, like you get something like Desert Rose where he's actually inviting other musicians into the process. And, uh, right. you know, I, I think I think they probably learned a lot.
0: <laughs> so, guys, it's time to discuss our da do do do's and our da 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 da's because it's time to discuss our favorite lyrics. Um, So we're going to go first. Uh, let's go to actually we're going to hear from Randy again for uh your for your favorite lyric.
2: Uh, We were just talking about Born in the 50s and the identity of this album being, you know, punk, but not punk. Uh, Chris, you made that great observation that, like, this is almost like a punk song, lyrically, but not in terms of, like, the energy that we bring to it. Um, And, you know, we get a lot of really simple lyrics about loneliness, holes in our life, et cetera. But I'm going to go with Born in the 50s because I love the... uh, I love the lyrics we get in here, like about that vibe, about that generational, like anger, that frustration with your parents, that that generational thing that repeats every 30 years. Um, You know, it's our other brick, another brick in the wall sort of moment. But I do love this little moment in Born in the 50s. You don't understand us, so don't reprimand us. We're taking the future. We don't need no teacher. I, I love that little progression there. Um, because what generation has not felt that way? Uh, what generation has not wanted to say that? Uh, the irony of me being a teacher is not lost on me as I say this. <laughs> uh, but you know, like, like my best moments in class are when I have students who like will push back on something. I want that. I want a conversation. I want, I want uh, the younger generation bringing that energy. So I, I love the fact that it's in there. I love the fact that they're feeling it. It helps me see what kind of bond they had with all of their contemporaries. One thing I, I literally learned today by total coincidence just before recording this podcast was, uh you know, I didn't realize that like the two-tone uh, bands in London were like directly organizing in response to like fighting racism uh, on the music scene uh, from like from rants from people like Eric Clapton and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So like, yeah, like, like just just to see them like, like nodding to like a progressive culture with frustrations, not loving what they've been, they've been handed. I I just love to see and hear and feel that. So that's a connection I feel to that song. And I love that lyric. I love those lyrics.
0: And also you got to love that slant rhyme, right? With the future and teacher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh, absolutely. That, al- that also is like a little bit of defiance there. <laughs> like,
2: oh, absolutely. Yeah hey teacher Uh, leave them kids alone it's the the same (laughs) story right yeah but i love it every time
0: (laughs) so i'm gonna piggyback off that because i also went with born in the 50s i went with a a little bit of a different lyric here which is would they drop the bomb on us while we made love on the beach we were the class they couldn't teach because we knew better i just like how much is contained here in these two (laughs) lines you've got cold war paranoia with (laughs) they draw the bomb on us and then what I think is a nod to the sort of free love of the late sixties. I like that it's contained in the same line. It really does again, capture the sense of defiance of a younger generation with an older generation that had experienced what the bomb could do and was living with this sense of this post cold, this cold war world where nuclear threat seemed imminent. Um, You know, you really do see that gap here and I think what I what I like about this sort of recurring line of because we knew better, it kind of starts to and this is this really plays into the themes of the song, I think. At first you think, oh, that's what that's what he's saying. He's saying the younger gen- generation knows better. The old generation is kind of foolish, kind of lost in you know tradition and superstition and that kind of thing. And they know better. And as it goes along, it almost starts to feel like a question of like, do we know better? Do we feel like we know better? Because that's it starts to feel less like we actually know better, like what that means, mm. and more we feel like we do. There's a, a sense of self-awareness that comes in. And I think it's, again, I think it's part of why the song does resonate with me, despite maybe not being one of my favorite musically on the album. Lyrically, I think it's quite interesting because it starts to be, you know, self-critiquing, self-aware, and start to question Are we improving? Do we know better? Are we just as foolish as the last generation? Um, I also love the um, the rhyme of beach and teach. Um, I could not find and Randy, if you know the word for this, if there's a more specific word, there's end rhyme and there's internal rhyme. This is like combining the two. I don't know if there's a word for that or not, because because. Class we couldn't teach is in the middle of the second line, whereas beach is the end, uh, the end rhyme of the first line. So I don't know if it's just internal rhyme then,
2: <laughs> but yeah, I think I would, I think that's essentially what I would end up calling it. I mean, yeah, I think what's really interesting to me there is just the fact that they didn't want to go with a neat and tidy, uh, rhyme, uh, rhyme scheme to begin right. with. Yeah, you know, like we had the slant rhyme in my section we're, we're messing with it here. Um I think if they got too neat and tidy here, it, it would undercut that that whole vibe. And I, and I yeah. really love that extra layer of complexity you added into it, like that self-questioning angle. You know, I don't I don't know that I fully had uh internalized that listening, but but you sold me on it and uh, I see it and I hear it. Great observation.
0: And the fact like the fact that line recurs too and and even having that rhyme, it actually sets it up so that because we know better stands out which again becomes this refrain throughout the song and then there's that line about you know we prayed to the tv we should have known better which again seems like okay now he's adding even another layer of, of meaning there um yeah so it's it's uh there's a lot going on here in this song and you know I, I am curious, Chris, what you brought up before about maybe having a more punk-inspired feel to it. Would that have made it more interesting? I Like, perhaps. I wonder if the other, maybe by slowing it down, it starts to make some of that other stuff stand out more. Um, I don't know. I, I'd be curious to hear a faster version of this song to see what the effect is. But, um, but yeah, I think it's just very rich lyrically.
1: Well, I know certainly... Sting definitely had an appetite for redoing songs. (laughs) But we'll get into that later. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And arguably some of them were better with that as well. (laughs) But anyway, so I did not go with Born in the 50s because I don't think there's much left besides the chorus there. And I'm definitely not going to go with that. But I went with, uh, you know, as much as thing is on this album i went with some andy summers lyrics and not even lyrics because they're uh parts of uh from be my girl sally and specifically uh specifically the poem in there a couple of the line favorite lines from that poem that i picked out she came all wrapped in cardboard all pink and shriveled down a breath of air was all she needed to make her lose that frown She's everything they said she yep. was. And I wear a permanent grin. I only have to worry in case my girl wears thin. Yeah, yeah. Is it childish? Sure. Is it is it hilarious, though? Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> and I, I thought it's really... I thought he did a really good job of beating around the bush without it being uh, too vulgar. Because... Sure. Apparently, this song wasn't enough to get banned by the BBC, <laughs> even though one was and one was claimed to have been. I think Roxanne was claimed to have been banned, uh, and that actually improved its popularity. Uh, funnily enough, I thought it was really a um, uh, funny poem, and it I don't know makes me think back on the times where I didn't know what they were saying and I would just skip the song. And uh, now that I know the lyrics, I end up uh, listening to it as long as as long as I'm in good company. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Also, I don't know. um, Obviously, this is uh, at the end of the song, but you have some pretty weird vocals at the end. I don't know what that's trying to signify, but I like to think of it is as Sally deflating. It's like something otherworldly,
0: almost.
2: (laughs) I was just going to say, we recently uh, lost Paul Rubens, and all I can think of right now is Pee Wee Herman, like, deflating a balloon musically. (laughs) If you've ever seen that bit. (laughs) Yes. Yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. No, like, I I do enjoy this song, you know, and if, if someone's never heard it, and you just had to describe to them in one sentence what this song is about, uh they they might roll their eyes they might feel uncomfortable um and you know understandably so but but i think why it it works to a certain extent on a humorous level is like it it's not so much about you know the, his physical relationship with the doll for lack of a better word like right. i feel like like the the joke is is the narrator like the disconnect like the the lack of like sort of emotional uh maturity or ability to make a connection like like that's the joke it's not really like a graphic poem and you know i'll admit i don't think i had given the poem this much thought until now chris so thank you but you know like it's almost a commentary on the sort of like you know emotional immaturity that we see in some of these other songs you know like you know but we haven't really talked about can't stand losing you yet but you know uh, that that time period of the 80s to just like so playfully joke about, you know, I, I, I'm I going to kill myself without this person. it's But it, it just reflects a different mentality. Right. We look at those things with a different sensitivity. And
1: I think that brings up a good, good point about like some of the immaturity that they're highlighting. Like when you said Can't Stand Losing You, like I always found it funny, like the way he says, you'll be sorry when I'm dead. <laughs> like that's almost how I hear it even though it's not delivered that way i can definitely see that
0: <laughs> so guys it's time to talk about a little thing they did that was magic that's right our favorite music or a favorite musical moments let's say from the album and uh chris let's start with you this time
1: i'm gonna go back to randy's king of pain uh, masoko Tonga. uh i just really love uh the different things that we hear Uh, on the song, and while it's not the most cohesive, uh, I really want to highlight the bass playing on the song, and I have to also talk about the drums. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, there are three different bass tracks going on at once, at one point. Uh, You kind of have, like, the bass playing that he starts off with, but then you have, like, two, like... Other forms of it that are that are brought in that are add a little bit of flavor to to the song. Uh, so I thought it was really interesting the way he added in those tracks. And I'm not sure if that's the reason why they that they don't play this song live because apparently they don't. Uh, but they uh, so there's some layered bass tracks on there. There's also uh, a layer of drumming on here where you have uh, bongo playing start kind of like midway through. And what once like everything gets pulled away and you hear the bongos, you're like, oh wow, that's that's really cool. And he was like, oh you can just keep going and I'd still be interested to hear <laughs> where he goes with this. Uh so it's really cool to bring that that piece in uh into the song. Copeland I-, I think until like really like fully listening to the album like I didn't fully appreciate Copeland as a drummer. And I'm really glad I've gone back and listened to this album several times. Uh, And I think like this is like the perfect example of how he can take it to a whole new level. And I don't know that there's many other drummers that can do what he does. And it's pretty interesting that all the bands that chosen to talk about, they have really solid drummers. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Weird Noises in there, too. Uh, that kind of sound like piano, and I found out the reason why it sounds like piano is it's piano that's played backwards. So uh, a lot oh, of very I interesting what sounds. I know you're talking about. Uh, that's really cool. Uh, a lot of interesting sounds here, and again, it's not the most cohesive, but like it just really gave me a better appreciation for like what Stan can bring to to his bass playing and uh, Copeland's drumming. Um, so I really wanted to highlight that piece.
0: Nice. Well, I have to say, we've done a really good job of highlighting the lesser known songs on this album so far, which is really, which is really cool. Randy, let's go to you next for your musical
2: moment. All right. So I know I'm just I'm over here thinking uh, I can't believe how little we've talked about So Lonely. However, it's not full of lyrics and it does not happen to be my lyrical uh, pick, but m- maybe we'll sneak in and mention later. Um I'm really fascinated by Sting's voice because, you know, I think that's part of why the police work. Sting has this really interesting voice. I mentioned, you know, like Roxanne earlier, he he hits this emotion when he says Roxanne's name. Uh, but the musical moments that jumped out to me are the moments where like the the harmonious sound, the, the musicality of it breaks a little bit. Um, and I'm, I'm torn between a couple of examples, but I think I'm going to go with Can't Stand Losing You um it's during a verse that contains a line chris was was joking about earlier that you'll be sorry when i'm dead um you know not not the most sophisticated lyric just as we're like getting it we're into like the bridge of the song uh the pacing changes we get kind of this one ominous tone and like sting lets a little venom into his voice like a little bit of negativity like the the pace changes up and it really sounds like true anger you know, if I if I had one critique of the police as a band overall, it would be like like sometimes like there's a disconnect for me between like the, the subject matter of a song and the tone of the song. And sometimes that feels clever and sometimes it pulls me out of it. But I, I love this moment because I, I can feel in his voice and just that one little tone over it, like exactly what um he's feeling. and I, And I think there are a few moments he does that on some of the other sort of like more more punk rock tracks you know like like in next to you like some of those really fast you took me over think i'm go think i'm going insane like these really quick things where he, he just breaks his own sort of beauty and musicality like he's doing something for the song more so than him and and i love that especially in can't stand losing you that i really connect with it uh you know d- despite uh you know some qualms i have with the lyrics <laughs>
0: yeah that's you know i i like that you mentioned that because now that you mentioned it so many other moments on other songs are jumping to mind for me as well you know but yeah can't stand losing is one of those weird songs where it's like i love the song i have to be honest i am a little bit uncomfortable just reading about like how they thought of it and like sting saying like well it was about teenage suicide which is always kind of a joke and i'm like what I guess the way I always read the song was that it was someone who wasn't actually contemplating suicide and that it was about someone who was just kind of experiencing the sort of initial, you know, heartbreak and the sort of extremity of that. I don't know if that's wishful thinking on my part or if they really are like maybe making light of actual tragedy that happens to people and ruins their lives.
2: I hadn't heard that quote, but that that's kind of how I took it, Justin, whereas I'm going to take these lyrics with a grain of salt and an understanding that we would treat that differently in the present. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I feel and see your, your discomfort. Um, yeah, the, the attitude is is so casual here at times that it can be a problem.
0: And it's especially interesting because when we talked about Rush, like they have a, a few songs that are about like, especially suicide and like, you know younger people contemplating there's a couple of songs about that i'm like okay this is like the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of how serious they're taking it uh so i'm going to go with a song we sort of touched on but i have to be honest i kind of went with it because i thought it was unique and it is also something that's always stuck out to me about the song so the song is Roxanne i'm going with the intro <laughs> The as it is as he is properly credited in the liner notes, uh, the butt piano that Sting played (laughs) not on purpose, as well as the laugh that he made after he accidentally played the piano with his butt. So this is an interesting story to me because I grew up. And I always remember this moment of the song. It's it's a very memorable thing for me. I always assumed it was totally intentional. I thought they were setting the scene for the song that, like, the piano, like, kind of this weird, like, pseudo-waltz type of thing that was sort of meant to put us into this world where... You know, there's there's all these there's these ladies of the night and and the laugh that we hear is meant to be like coming from some room, you know, some some darkly lit smoke filled room like it's setting an atmosphere for this. And then I read about the origin of this and it's just that Sting accidentally sat on piano, laughed about it, and then they incorporated into the song. It was not necessarily supposed to be there from the beginning. So what I will say, though, is that apparently I, I did listen to the raw track of that and they did manage to edit it in such a way where it fits more t- into the fabric of the song. So my point here is the police are so good they can make even mistakes sound good and sound intentional. That takes some that takes some credit. So this is a real credit to them as producers, as sound engineers to make that happen. Um, because I always loved it I still love it every time I hear it even though I know the origin of it now but it's just hilarious to me that that's what actually happened and they turned it into something you know I really like Roxanne's probably one of my even though it's the most probably the most popular song on the album it's still like one of my favorite songs I just think it's I never get tired of it but that intro just I don't know it adds something I wouldn't want to hear the song without it so again that's a credit to them and their ability to uh, make mistakes and make them intentional so
2: I, I will say one reason i'm really happy you brought that up justin is because you know we, we've already spent some time in the first episode talking about the tension between the band members and, and obviously that's a big part of the story here but it's so nice to remember that like you know they they do like each other and respect each other on a certain level and that they did have some fun and that that's such a great reminder of that like Um, I've got I've got like eight notes here. I'm not going to make you sit and listen to all of them. But like I've been really loving this uh, Stuart Copeland documentary where he compiled a lot of his footage from that American tour for the first album. So it's like a lot of these like little candid behind the scenes. And and I just love the things where you see that sense of humor. And like the one I've chosen to share is just uh, there's this one little piece of footage where they've put a tag on Sting. Uh, You know, it says if lost return to Paddington Station. You know, so, you know, it's, it's, they're evoking that, that history of actual children. But, you know, obviously, right, right now today, I can't help but think of him as a giant Paddington bear. And it, it's just, it's great to see them having fun and enjoying each other like that.
0: So, guys, we, there's a lot of songs I feel like we left on the table. Are there any ones
1: that you want to spotlight? Yeah, I'll just go through a couple real quick. And, uh, so for, I feel like we didn't talk about next to you at all. I, I really liked the, uh the guitar playing on the song and then um had some really booming drums at the end that I I thought were really nice. And um I thought it was also fun when one of the later verses I felt like Sting and 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 Summers were playing off of each other um where he would like say a a verse and then like he kind of respond on guitar. So I really like that piece of it. And then um So Lonely uh I think one of the things picked up is like what kind of gives songs that reggae feel and to me it was mostly uh summers was playing kind of on the upbeats of the notes and i I won't pretend like again i'm not super musical but um you know kind of like as kind of like playing like towards the end of like a a given note is kind of what gives it that uh that feel again interesting like you have a sad so talking about it's so lonely, but you have this upbeat music. So like the di- dichotomy there, but it also you know picks up a little bit uh, towards the end. Uh, and I just thought it was interesting the way uh, Sting kind of used different like tones, volume, and pitch uh, towards the end when he's talking about I feel low slash I feel lonely, and so it really speaks to the the range of of Sting and um, different things that he can give there, and then. You have like kind of soft drumming in the verses, but then like went harder in the chorus. So really interesting, really interesting song there. It was definitely up there and, you know, one of the top songs on the album for me. And then really quick on Roxanne, uh, because we can't talk enough about Roxanne. Really like how they let things vocals shine through.
0: Were there any others for you, Randy, that that uh, you feel like we didn't get to talk about?
2: Uh, I'm going to yes and Chris on so lonely. That was the one. I, I know I said it a minute ago, but like I I almost can't believe we talked. We didn't talk about it more cuz again, being a police newbie, that that's a song that escaped me for most of my life. And uh, it it absolutely rips. I mean, we get we get like a soft we get like the soft more reggae infused sort of introduction. You get into the song even though the lyrics are almost entirely so lonely. I'm so lonely just over and over again. If you look up the lyrics, it's just the the pacing is so fun. It's so fast. It's so energetic. Like I can just imagine myself like being back in the late 70s, seeing a police show and just like grooving to that intro. And just I could just see the audience eating out of their hand listening to that song. It's got such such a fun, fast pacing uh, you know, I mentioned to uh, my brother-in-law recently that I, that I was going to be working on this police podcast. And, you know, he's really into boating. Uh, and within a few minutes, he's like, oh, yeah, I actually was just thinking I hadn't listened to the police in a while. And there's this one song that, that I'd kind of forgotten about. And I, I really loved it. And he's like, what was it? And, you know, sure enough, it was so lonely. He went looking it up on his phone. And, yeah, it's just it's just fun. Like, I don't care that... <laughs> the word so lonely or simple so yeah like uh you know if we've successfully convinced any new police fans to listen to this for whatever reason um that's a track you want to track down right away that that, that's a great first non-roxanne police song to listen to
0: yeah and it was the third single off this album i just think unfortunately i think the other two songs were so big that it almost like didn't Mm -hmm. leave room for it um, I know, like most police fans, like they they really do love this song. I think it's great. I really do like like the beats of like the the drumming in it is very distinctive. Um, and I have to say, and this is true of a lot of songs in the album. Um, not to get too personal, but I will say, as the one single person on this podcast, <laughs> I found a lot more to relate to here than I would care to admit. Uh, <laughs> and the repetition of it, I have to say. There's something true in that. Like being in that space, it's like a constant reminder. It's like a constant throbbing. And I think that, you know, the repetition the so lonely, you know, it, it really does. Or even like the can't stand, can't stand losing like that, that kind of thing. Yeah, I just I just wanted to make a point that the repetition really does have some truth to it psychologically, let's say. But uh, yeah, and that's truth that's, hits everybody. Well played, sir. Well played. Um, I did also just want to bring up Next to You. That's not a song about loss necessarily, but it's a song about how having this feeling can make you like very anxious and feeling like you can't contain that energy. Like it's not necessarily a positive depiction of love, but it's very much a love song. I love that. I love the energy of that song. I like that so many of the punk inflections are for songs that are about love, which is very counter to what punk typically writes about. Um, That feels punk, actually, (laughs) ironically. I did also just want to bring up some musical moments that really stand out to me. Um, Peanuts, you mentioned that, Chris. Luke Martin, who was a host on Pod on the Rooftops and Podwork Angels, would talk about big boy drum fills. And boy, are there a lot of them on Peanuts. And I don't mean that in a gendered sense. Obviously, anyone, any drummer of any gender could, could make them. It's more just a sense that they are forceful, um you know very technical and unmistakable and i think that's what they are in peanuts so i just wanted to mention that also the weird bridge in can't stand losing you that kind of starts when when sting goes out and then all of a sudden we get this like weird like almost sounds like synthesizer like yeah it's very strange i just love that it's there in the middle of it before we go into like the the last um the last verse it's really cool um, so i just wanted to mention that but guys i think we've gotten to the point where we talk about other musical artists we've been listening to other than the police so let's get into that shall we and uh start with randy this time
2: hey have you guys ever heard of a, a little song called born in the 50s i
0: think so <laughs> we might have talked
2: about it a little bit yeah we, we talked about it once or twice uh yes i've been listening to the police uh but largely on on the back of that track and uh although Ground, we've already covered with that one. Uh, It got me thinking about one of my favorite oddball artists out there, uh, and this is Jonathan Richman. Um, He's very much an if-you-know-you-know kind of artist. Uh, Generally, when I encounter someone who knows Jonathan Richman, uh, they love him. Uh, He was born uh, within a few months of Sting, like really similar age, uh, that same vibe. Um, He's got lots of great songs, uh, including a song called Fender Stratocaster. And the opening lines to that song are born in the 50s, looking so bold. Everything our parents hated about rock and roll uh, are the very first uh, lyrics to that song. Um, Jonathan Richman, uh, if you've never heard the name, maybe you saw the film. There's something about Mary once upon a time. Uh, And in that film, there's like this musical troubadour narrator uh, he keeps popping up in a tree, kind of singing to the camera about what's happening in the movie. Uh, and at the end of the film, he actually gets shot right out of the tree. Um, you know, I'm from Massachusetts. He's a a greater Boston area native, uh, you know, so he he got some love in there. Uh, but yeah, Jonathan Richmond. he like spent the late 60s trying to get in with the Velvet Underground, hanging around with those folks. Uh, he wrote some really great tracks. The most famous one is is called Roadrunner, um, you know, which, which has some chops. And that track and a few others made it to London uh, through a music critic, uh, and he inspired the Sex Pistols and a bunch of these punk rock bands. And they loved his songs because they were so gentle and simple, like they they were so not establishment songs. Um, You know, like, like Roadrunner is just basically about driving your car around at night uh, aimlessly with with nowhere to go. And uh, yeah, so like the Sex Pistols, they were like covering Jonathan Richman songs. And he's just this very gentle. Yeah, he's just this very gentle, soft spoken dude. Um, he's the only artist I've ever gone to see live who plays in a classical guitar stance. Like he's very like up straight and proper. Like he's coming to you from the 1950s, like looking at you with this nice, polite smile on his face. Um, there's this concert he played in London, uh, you know, in the seventies after becoming this sort of like cult sensation and the London crowds didn't know what to do with him. It's kind of like the street cred that the police didn't have. They're like, who the hell is this guy? Uh, in his like little polo shirt or whatever, like what's going on here? Who are we listening to? And yeah, he he's also kind of like I'm a fan of Calvin and Hobbes, which is a great cartoon, uh, which which famously never VR sold out. <laughs> yeah, and and Jonathan Richmond also famously uh, never sold out. All, a bunch of different record producers tried to make him a thing. He never quite wrote what they wanted to. He's just always wanted to explore life and the world. And, uh, you know, he's from the Boston area. So when I saw him in Somerville, Massachusetts, at one point, it was during a a Red Sox World Series run. And he has a song that references Fenway Park just as like a site in Boston. And someone tried to do like a whole like sports fan thing because it was the middle of a playoff round. And they're like, you know, Jonathan, like go Red Sox. They're they're trying to suck him into this conversation. And I'll never forget him just like looking at the person in the crowd. And he just kind of shrugged his shoulders. And he's like, I just prefer to play baseball, you know, like, <laughs> I'm not interested in competition and, and all these negative vibes. But uh, yeah, Jonathan Richman, some really quirky music. If you want something more crowd pleasing, he actually had he gets occasional appearances in pop culture, like a couple years ago, I think within a week or two of each other. Uh, one of his songs showed up in both Euphoria and the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. He has this great early 90s song mm-hmm. called Uh, I Was Dancing in the Lesbian Bar, which is a really great, upbeat, fun track. Uh, But the thing I love him for is just his weird oddball singer-songwriter stuff. And uh, my recommended track would be a little track called Abominable Snowman in the Supermarket, which is about an abominable snowman going to the grocery store and the housewives not knowing how to respond to that. Um, So oddball (laughs) artist, lots of fun. He's worth at least knowing if he tracks by.
0: Yeah, I I'm pretty sure I've heard of him because you mentioned him in an email to me. And I don't think I'd heard of him before then. So because you were talking about, it, I was like, this sounds vaguely familiar. And then I was realizing that was what it was from. But um, that's pretty cool. Where you can run rub elbows with the Velvet Underground and the Sex Pistols. <laughs> that's uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah.
2: Uh, oh yeah he didn't even he never even really knew them they just like got one of his albums and it was in like the jukebox or something where they would hang out Oh, i see okay and then when he came over everyone was just confused because he was such a nerd
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's funny all right so i'm gonna go next and an artist that i've been listening to recently um which is i would say a band i've been a fan of for a little bit i grew up thinking that oh i don't you know, I'm above that kind of music, which was very, you know, elitist of 16 year old me. And but now I definitely would call myself a fan and have really come to appreciate them. And it's a band that I'm pretty sure, uh, Randy, that you are familiar with. It's uh, Nirvana. I've been listening to them actually in anticipation of doing some kind of I kind of want to do like a top 10 songs for all these different artists that I listen to, because I've, I've done it for, you know, we did it for Rush, but I'm like, you know, I might do it for some of the other ones just to have it and maybe do a little bit of commentary on each song, something like that. And Nirvana has a very manageable discography if you're just looking at like sort of the mainstream releases. So that's what I'm doing right now. So I've been listening to all three albums and basically any of their extended plays uh, multiple times And I have to say the thing that does impress me about them is that, you know, they really did not attempt to duplicate their sound on a subsequent album. They didn't try to make Nevermind 2, you know, like in utero is very different from from Nevermind. Nevermind is very different from Bleach. Um, You know, there really is a sense of evolution and of trying new things, even within the space that they were in. Um, which is sort of garage rock, definitely grunge, a little bit of punk. I was surprised just like, oh, they really did not want to repeat themselves. And that gained a lot of respect <laughs> from me. And I have to just say, there are certain songs that I feel like, you know, there's the ones that get a lot of attention. I will say, as someone who grew up thinking Smells Like Teen Spirit was overrated, the more I'm hearing it, I'm like, no, this is a good song. Like, I don't know if it's my favorite, but like, I think I like it now. Like, <laughs> I think I get it but there are other songs that don't get as much attention that i've always had an affinity for i always really liked the song very ape on in utero which is this like 2 minute song <laughs> i don't know just them like rocking out basically i don't know if it makes a lot of sense it doesn't need to it's just like a perfect 2 minute song in my opinion um there's all kinds of cool things i think kurt cobain definitely needs to get more credit for what he did with his Um, guitar pedals particularly the chorus pedal effect, in terms of getting some of those like watery effects that you hear probably most prominently on Smells Like Teen Spirit or Come As You Are but also on something like the song Drain You um, which has a really eerie kind of bridge in it that's that's been a theme for me apparently on this episode is (laughs) eerie sounding bridges in songs so yeah I I think if you you know if you've heard Smells Like Teen Spirit a million times you know, definitely check out. I'd say check out their entire discography because there's a lot of like great songs that you might not you might not know. Um, so yeah, it's a band I've come to appreciate more as I've gotten older. Um, and uh, 16 year old me can go suck it. So
2: you just made my night, Justin. And the MTV Unplugged live album is one of my favorite things that that ever happened. Oh they, yeah, they can do it yep. even without all the bells and whistles.
0: Yeah, I think it showed that, you know, as much as I do like a lot of the effects, like I do think that that helps make, you know, it's just instrumentation, right? It's like adding to the effect of the song, but I think they were good songs to begin with, and I think that's why they sound good acoustic. So, um, yeah, and I'm not going to lie, part of the reason I chose them is because I figured that you were a fan. I remember you mentioning them, but I just happened to be listening to them anyway, so
1: worked out. I'm probably more familiar with Nevermind than their other albums. I have listened to their their other albums and I could probably listen to them again. <laughs> so I've liked what I've what I've heard from them, but maybe need more time to explore them even more. Yeah.
0: And like I said, very manageable discography. It's good for that. But I'm assuming you went with a different artist then, Chris.
1: <laughs> uh yes, yeah, quite different. I went with the band Ginger, which is a metalcore band, uh formed in the late two thousands. Uh, they are uh, metalcore. They also have experimented with a lot of different genres, uh, R&B, soul, funk, jazz. And so while I would say like that's a genre that encompasses them, they definitely uh, have um, some progressiveness to them. I cannot pronounce <laughs> all the band members' names because they are all, or at least most, Ukrainian Uh, But the lead singer, Tatiana, probably stands out the most for me, especially as I'm getting introduced to them. Uh, She has an amazing vocal range on, on par with, like, Celine Dion, Sarah McLachlan, I feel. But then she also has growls. And probably one of my favorite things, one of my guilty pleasures is to watch reaction videos on YouTube of their one song, Pisces. Because she starts out, and she's, like, singing so lovely. And then you start to heal, hear growls. And at first, you're like, oh, there must be, like, another... There must be a guy, like, doing the growls, like, next to her. And then it just flashes to her, and you see her, like, doing the growls. And you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe... <laughs> I can't believe, you know, this angel has a, you know, demon side to her. People don't expect it, but... um it's really cool that she has such an uh, amazing range. And actually what made me think of uh, coming back to the band is um, as we are thinking about the police and how heavily influenced they are in reggae, uh, there's a really cool reggae-style song in there uh, called Judgment, uh, Parentheses, and Punishment. And it's really cool how the song like, flips back between, like, three different styles, including, like, the reggae one. I don't know how Tatiana does it, but she can just flip of a switch, like, switch styles, and it's just really cool to hear that. And, like, it also, you know, the the instrumentation and the ability to switch between them and make it sound cohesive is also very admirable. So uh, definitely recommend you check them out. I think right now they are on a little bit of a break. Uh, they uh, were able to. Uh, they weren't uh, luckily impacted by the things happening uh, in Ukraine. They were able to uh, leave Ukraine in 2022, and tour as ambassadors to the nation for that. So, uh, really cool that that they can provide support in that in that sense, uh, given their small popularity across across the nation probably a good way for them to get get word out there as uh, we know that this war is still ongoing
0: yeah especially as it's left the media cycle seemingly entirely despite the fact that it's still going on yeah and and chris i'm i'm so glad i was not expecting that i i've definitely become a, a bigger fan of them I was actually, one of the reasons why I got into them was because I was looking for more female-fronted metal bands to listen to. And I remembered like seeing the video for Pisces and thinking that was freaking awesome. And it's been really interesting listening to them because they're quite different from other metal bands that I that I like. They You mentioned some of the genres they incorporate. I've also noticed um, some like groove metal, which is like kind of Bands like Lamb of God or Pantera were like, that was kind of their um, forte. And I'm noticing bits of that. Uh, Gent, which is another sort of subgenre of metal. uh, Bands like Meshuga do, like I've noticed that, you know, that in their sound as well. So they're almost like, in some ways, almost like a collage of different metal genres. And it was interesting listening to them, having heard some of those genres, being familiar with them and seeing them incorporate that into their sound. I will be honest I don't I wouldn't say I'm like I, I I'm not a connoisseur of the band yet I I've I definitely have everything I've listened to everything, you know but it's definitely one of those bands that has gotten better as I've listened to more of their stuff and they're still like relatively new um and I do like that you mentioned the stuff like trying to get the word out about what's happening I know like in the early days of the war I remember one of the guitarists trying to make a plea to different you know countries outside russia and ukraine saying hey i just want you to know russia's going to attempt to whitewash everything that's happening so i'm going to tell you what's actually happening in ukraine and um that's exactly what we've seen so it's one of those things where you know the timing is a little strange just in terms of like them sort of gaining more popularity but it's fascinating listening to them and then hearing the music and some of it Some of it is reactionary to stuff that happened even before the war. Um, So, yeah, it's just a really fascinating band. Um, I don't know if it's going to be for everybody's taste, but I'm really glad to hear you bring them up because they're definitely to my taste.
2: (laughs) Well, all I can add to this conversation is that uh, this is why I need you two in my life to bring me on this metal journey, because that's uh, (laughs) that's that's not my most knowledgeable area. But I, I just quickly Googled this band Uh, Mm -hmm. And like the first shot of Tatiana is she is like crouched in a golden jumpsuit, screaming, potentially doing one of those growls. That is just like, she looks awesome. So I will be checking out Pisces probably the second we get off this call. So so thanks for the rec. Yes.
0: And believe me, I will be recommending at least one metal band in course of our episodes here. But we've gone quite a while, so maybe we should wrap it up there and talk about where we can find everybody chris i know for you we'll continue to hear you on this podcast and we can also hear you on podwork angels the rush hour as part of the PopBreak.com's Popbreak pop break today feed uh randy where can we find you i know that you've been doing some stuff with the pop break recently
2: yeah i've been having a really great time hanging out with the pop break you know i've been doing a lot of coverage of doctor who uh you know Back in December, we had the 60th anniversary specials, uh, so I'm going to be keeping my eye on that scene. Uh, you know, when this podcast airs, I think I think they're still going to be airing episodes of the most recent season of Fargo, which I've been, uh, I've been doing some write-ups on. Uh, it's been some really awesome television. Uh, I hope that that's still true when this episode airs, but uh, I can certainly vouch for everything I've seen so far. Uh, And and if you want to find me on social media, I am on Twitter uh, at Mr. Underscore Elaine, A-L-L-A-I-N. And I've also got a link to Blue Sky over there, which has been a pretty positive social media space.
0: Oh, nice. I'm glad to hear that. And I'm also glad to hear about the new season of Fargo, which I have not watched any of yet. And, but i'm glad to hear that's good because man was i massively disappointed by season four
2: based on three three episodes I've watched so far possibly the best yet uh,
0: wow that's saying something the season two is it, pretty it, high it, up there for me <laughs>
2: at the very least it's a return to some incredible form okay but, uh yeah it, it's a it and at the very least it's fun and it it cr- it cranks so far so great oh awesome <laughs> glad to hear that
0: as for me, you can find my work uh, on thecinemaverick.com. I'm also on Letterbox at the Uh May have some top ten lists coming uh, for different bands uh, in addition to Nirvana uh, by the time that this posts. Uh, so I will, you know, and I'll probably plug those when they <laughs> know exactly what they are. Uh, but uh, you can find my stuff there. Uh, also, my two music podcasts for thepopbreak.com, as I mentioned, are on the Pop Break Today feed as part of the popbreak.com. For now, this is our second goodbye, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and there'll be many more to come uh before this podcast ends. Thank you for joining us.